Welcome to another episode of The Cubic Report. My guest today is Les Booth from Lafayette, Indiana. I've known Les for about 28 years, who has been always on the leading edge of technology and innovation. It's amazing how that time has gone by, but I have learned from being around him and with him at different times a great deal of what I practice today technologically. He has a great depth of knowledge in areas that, again, I like to find applications. So welcome to the podcast, Les. Well, thank you, Vic. It's good to be here. And it's about time. We've only tried to do this. How many years? Well, <laughs> uh, for a long, long time. We keep saying, let's do a podcast, let's do a podcast, and then it just dies down. And then finally, this last week, with some AI news that came out and presentation that I heard, I just called Les and said, we got to do it. We got to do it this week. <laughs> yeah. and, and, so, and so here we are. Les and I talk very, very uh, openly and fluidly with one another. And I thought, man, this would be great to share this with, with others. Les helped me with the development of my first website. Loves technology. He also loves to be able to share it with others. But he started me with my first website, first HTML language that I learned, and still some of the coding that I use right now is from direct or less uh, showing me how to do it. But today we're going to talk about AI. Just about everybody's heard AI. It is something which is morphing day by day. Uh, it is uh, in the news all the time. It is in advertising. There is a lot being said about it as far as what it actually is how it works, how it applies to the things that we do in our lives. And also there's a lot of fear about its doomsday applications of something that might take over the world. I might say, too, that I do value your analysis of where we are, you know, you're futuristic. Now, can you tell us a little bit about who you are? Uh, basically, I'm a Hoosier, born bred Hoosier here in Indiana. Um, I'm 71 years of age, um, and I have a degree from Purdue uh, in ag systems management. I also have a substantial amount of fisheries, aquatic science, computer technology, and journalistic writing. Um, I am a fly in the four temperaments, sanguine, melancholy, chlor, and uh, phlegmatic. Uh, I'm a sanguine, sanguine, melancholy. I find everything interesting. And... At just you watch a fly fly in the room. The fly lights are here, flies, flies, flies. But when he leaves, he gathers things. And so I really enjoy gathering information. And then my wife tells me I sh should have Andrew in my name someplace because I love taking it to other people. Mm -hmm. uh, so I have a degree from Purdue, uh, worked in uh, graphics design, photography, uh, as my profession and in technology then and computing, but a lot of research, what I've really done for the last 15 years or so is to bring people from the analog world into the digital world, kicking and screaming. Yesterday, I went to a presentation at a Rotary Club downtown Indianapolis by Dr. David Crandall, who spoke about the future of AI. He is the director of the Luddy Artificial Intelligence Center at Indiana University and gave a fascinating presentation about how AI will potentially touch and transform the world. And he talked about how progress in it is developing and also some of the myths about it. Les, 
we've been talking a great deal about, about AI and how it works. Can you kind of give us a street-level view of where we're at with this right here? I might just give the date of this podcast because people listening to it even a month or two later may say, hey, that's uh, back to the Bronze Age. But today yeah. is January 24th, 2024. But tell us where you're at with AI and your impressions. Well, artificial intelligence, AI, first off, I don't really particularly like to call it AI. I know it's not artificial. It's not really intelligence. Uh, it's a compu computational derivation of data. That's what it amounts to and a lot of computing. It started really in the ideas of science fiction probably 120 years ago. Uh, 1956, in a conversation, I forget the gentleman's name, but it was at a meeting uh, of electronics, gave the name to it, AI's artificial intelligence. And it kind of languished because the technology wasn't there behind it. In the 1970s, it started to kick up some dust again, and people could see what potentials could be. And it was always that if we could if we could just get the faster processors, if we get more data and storage. And if you know anything about your history of Alan Turing, uh, who was the man who invented the machine that broke Enigma mm -hmm. uh, over in England, that was his comment. It was constantly stated, you know, if I could have memory, if I could get enough memory, I could break this thing. And that the fact of speed and the ability to store and re, uh, recover that stored information and reading it is, has it been a limiter? In the 1990s, with the invention of the internet, there was, there were really were two things that started up and it came from that. That's one is the technology to make the internet even work from voice over email, voice over uh, connections, telephone connections, mm -hmm. ethernet. Many of those items were the, might say the base that allowed people and that was the second thing. People from all over the world could start talking together. So instead of having a business boardroom or a telephone chat with 25 people within your country, you could have a chat with 25 people around the world of the smartest minds you can imagine. Things happen faster when that occurs. And then in, in late 1990s, AI became a reality because of faster processing speeds, more uh, data storage and data storage we used to look at one megabyte of data as being wow that's a huge amount of storage now and your tiniest little sub micro little you know very tiny chips that go into your phone you can get 256 gigabytes of storage mm -hmm. that's 2.5 thousand times greater i mean that's amazing in your phone so we don't have the limiters of the co-processing speed we had but it still is there and it's changing by the month. And in, really in the mid 2000s with the invention of the phone as the smartphone where people had their desktop in their hand anywhere they went and access to data, there were more people interacting. So artificial intelligence as we know it today is in basically I'd say three different areas. One specifically written artificial intelligence code to run a device. Uh, like your phone or like your uh, directionals on your car, even your coffee pot uh, and whatever in your house, uh, smart houses. Uh, the second one is specific 
code written between, say, corporates. Somebody will write something for a corporation to do the back end, you know, controlling uh, both, uh, uh, let's say, factorial control out in the in the uh, factory, uh, gathering orders, going to those orders, and uh, an item that came up in the early 90s, info marketing, uh, where you could come in and get knowledge. Knowledge was the key. So now you take all this data that you can rapidly access, gather and place in storage, and then go back and read it really fast. That's what gave artificial intelligence its legs. Mm-hmm. Well, and in, it, in the presentation that I had heard yesterday, Dr. David Crandall spoke about three areas of, uh, of AI. Uh, mm-hmm. One is the technology of it. And mm-hmm. that that's what's really expanded just uh, beyond limits. I remember my first computer and even my first website had a limit of 10 megabytes. You know? <laughs> and right now, you know, it's off the scale completely. And the amount of storage and how a storage of videos and how YouTube can store bazillion videos and just keep them there for recall. But then he talked about application of AI, you know, mm-hmm. in areas of engineering, education, uh, physical, social sciences, agriculture, all, all these things, uh, th- th- that's where it's important. But then the third area that he talked about was an area of concern because it's the most important and one that could be neglected is the people themselves and issues that have to do with society and the way people get along, everything dealing with ethics and fairness and uh, purpose of use. All these things uh, are coming together right now where technology and robotics and everything is outstripping everything else, and people are putting a lot of money to develop these machines. And he said the area that will probably fall behind will be more these areas of ethics. And and, that, and that's where the problem is, uh, yes. of, uh, of where this will lead to human behavior, right? It's one of the problems. Uh, and actually, it is the culmination problem. In the last two days, I've read a number of things kind of preparing for this kind of getting up to speed and as you alluded to and we were talking about uh, this weekend past weekend in which it changes literally by the day in in certain elements of it technology is on a roughly six three to six month turnaround depending on what you're talking about and ai is such uh, an interesting and people have really just embraced it so it's an interesting item so it gets played with a lot and you get a bunch of programmers and people who know how to put things together um, whether it's hardware or software when they get excited about something new things come about there's a limiter on that and it's not so much the technology as it is the economics and economics is can we make money from it where can we where can we use this to make money and if you don't have that or if you see that something's going to come out and make something else was that was derived or brought to use in the uh, for uh, people's use or whatever to make money with, if it's going to be eliminated by something new before it's cost uh, proofing, in other words, it's it's time it's actually made its money back, they'll stymie or kill the future. Well, Until you know, the time. I, I think it was that is so interesting because Dr. David Crandall, who is the director of the Luddy Artificial Intelligence Center at Indiana University, just pointed out to that is that uh, he and 55 other 
people, you know, in that uh, particular department, you know, are, are working on all, all this uh, research and everything. But he said that the other side of it is companies like Google and Facebook that are hiring these people away for a different purpose. Uh, it's still artificial intelligence, but it's for the purpose of making money. And yes. with making money, he said that the issues of uh, ethics and people themselves drop mm -hmm. lower. And he said that he has been, a, a, you know, it, it's tempting to go in those areas because you can make oh, a lot yes. of money. Because, sure. because uh, uh, Google and Facebook and some of the other companies will do that. But he said that the amount of money that's being pushed into it is just astronomical. And he said that what they do is they had this Luddy, the Luddy Institute or Center of Artificial Intelligence was funded by an individual in, I believe, the Indianapolis area, $40 million project for the mm. building. Uh, and he said it was just a tremendous gift, but said that is just very small compared to what Google, oh. what what Stanford and Berkeley have, you know, many, yeah. many times over that amount of money right now that is being funneled into those areas to develop this technology. Yeah, if it, it, I just read a piece yesterday, uh, and it's really breaking news on the fact that uh, Google, NVIDIA, they're the big chip makers. They are literally buying up other companies at, at a phenomenal rate. And it will literally come to a point to where there's only four, five, six major corporations that are controlling the chip manufacturing for AI. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the big limiters right now is the manufacture of the chips that are being used to run the AI deployment, whether it's in machines or computers or wherever. They, they've got a device that will fit on your eye basically in a uh, like a, a lens. But this, this lens is a an item in which it's got electronics in it mm -hmm. that'll do the you know you see the 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 sci-fi stuff where a guy looks out and sees a range finder and he can see something a thousand feet away and he can know what the windage is and all the information all that is that's being developed for just a lens that goes on your eye so you don't have this big item out here like a, a google eye or anything like that that's in the future but that that's where these chips, some of this being used. These large corporations are gathering up all this information, all of these actual uh, hardcore, hard, uh, say, emplacement plants to manufacture. Mm -hmm. So the corporation will own and control. That brings out the other aspect. Like I mentioned, economics, and the professor also mentioned it. There are two kinds of economics at play here. One is just send it out, put it out uh, for people to buy and the, you profit margins. Uh, and I, like I said, if you've brought a new quote unquote technology to pro, uh, to the service and you've got certain amount of money invested in it, you expect an ROI return, return on that investment over a protracted period of time. You, you know, if you put in $10 billion, you're hoping that in five years, 10 years, you'll definitely make that back and you'll be a profit margin. Yeah, and the first thing you want to do is to take care of your stockholders. Yeah, you want to everything. Give, to, to give them return for their investment, whatever yeah, so, it takes. So the next thing that happens is, is that if it's impinging, if this new technology impinging on what's already out there or maybe just newly out there, they'll kill that new technology. They'll hold it subversive. Then the second element of uh, economics is political economics. Mm-hmm in which, let's say, for instance, uh, 
and it's already happening from the standpoint of if a corporation wants to do something, we have a situation going on here in the Lafayette area between here and Lebanon called LEAP. And it is a very interesting dynamic of several thousand acres of land being built with manufacturing and everything. And there's a corporation that's at the head of this and driving it. And they have recently made funding to certain places that are literally buying the actions of that place. So they're, you know, it's, it, it's a common practice that if you want somebody to rally around your cry, you either pay them off to do so or you buy them. Mm-hmm. And this is nothing new. And the technology is, like you were saying, you talked about, uh, you know, somebody uh, in, in, investing in the, the IU uh, center there, $40 million. Artificial intelligence talks in billions, mm-hmm. billions of dollars. If $10 billion were set aside and invested just in the last two or three months, Elon Musk is raising a billion dollars for his uh, project, uh, basically ChatGPT's derivatives. That $10 billion I mentioned is to make chips in America. Mm-hmm. And we know that uh, Southern Indiana has a resurgence of that. We're having it up here at, the, at that LEAP Center. Right. Uh, it's happening here in West Lafayette. There's, uh, Indiana is interesting that it at one time had the opportunity to be what Silicon Valley became. Mm-hmm. I don't think any of us want the traffic problems and the, and the cost of living to be what it's there. But we're looking at this part of the country within 10 to 15 years of being a major center of chip production and technology. And all at that, really at the core of that is artificial intelligence, because Mm -hmm. that is that's that missing link, you might say, that can slip in there. Now, the one thing I want to bring about artificial intelligence, there's three things. One, it does some magnificent stuff and it's really cool to work with. Two, there's a lot of hype that goes with it. Right, it's right. It's not there yet. And three, what it can do now under the surface is more important. I saw a, a, a reel last night, watched a presentation by a lady who was talking about chat GPT specifically, but it goes along with all kinds of uh, AIs. And whereas when chat GPT started at version one, they trained it on a, a source of about 7,000 books and got it to the point to where when you asked it a question, it would go back to this information and go through that, what it learned, and give you a response. That's why some of the responses were pretty wonky, depending on what mm. you asked. Right. Then the next level was they turned it loose on websites around the world, millions of websites. And they gathered all kinds of information from academic to worthless. Mm. And you ask a question, It'll know something about that, and it'll give you a response back, and it'll gather it. The third level of it is that now they're cloaking where they get the information from. They're just saying it out, and it's scattering, gathering stuff. Now, keep in mind, that's how ChatGPT, artificial intelligence, gains its information. Right now, there is no such thing as an intelligent artificial intelligence that is cognizant and can think for itself and come up with new ideas. That's science fiction. But what it can do is it goes out and it watches our tracks. 
it learns from what we're saying and it gathers that data. So you ask it a question. It goes out faster than we can even blink and it scours over petabytes of information, which is gazillions of bytes, okay? Huge number and in seconds and then gathers up the information it brings to you. Here's the crux. The old saying, bad stuff in, bad stuff out. Okay, so if the data that you're going to and learning from is corrupt or error prone and you don't have something to fact check it, but you're going to this as on high, it's the information, it's the truth. And then you start developing all of your knowledge from that. You're going to have your source corrupted and everything past that is going to be corrupted. And that's... Uh... Even intentional. It isn't a matter of just yes. this thought and that thought and, and you know what 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 could be the real truth, but it could be delusion that's infused into the system to where you don't know what's what's right, what's wrong, because somebody wants you to believe something that's uh, an, an error. Yes, I mean I've had this discussion uh, with Jimmy Weeks, the owner of Wiki, uh, Wikipedia, uh, several years ago when you I went in to look at something that I had copied the page. I then looked at it, and, and this isn't the same thing was there before. I said, okay, maybe they've added new material. And I went through the entire page on this uh, subject, and there was nothing mentioned about basic historical information about how this subject derived. So I said, What's, what gives here? Now, the interesting thing about Wikipedia, it's, it is for the public to go in. You can, I, you know, I can go in as an editor. Mm -hmm. I have an account. And I can look at things and I can make suggestions for changes. I can actually go in and change certain things. Now, if I do it, they usually have people come back along and they verify. Mm -hmm. But how many pages does Wikipedia have besides billions? All right. You're, there's things going to be dropping the cracks. And then there are intentionals. Because I've gone in and I've made suggestions for changes or I've made changes and I get a rejection. They reject it. Not just me many other people right. trying to reintroduce the correct truth we knew from when it started. Again, I addressed you know, Mr. Weeks about that and said he really didn't have an answer because he knew it was a weakness. It's a problem there. And that's a problem pervasive across the internet. So if you sicken boys, you know, this artificial intelligence to go out and train itself off the internet, if the material that it's training from is error, then it's going to be compounded error once it gets out into that chat GPT. And people go to chat GPT or anything like that and they help them write something instead of letting it kind of write out, you know, a 500 word or a thousand word item. And then they go through it and glean from it and write in their own words. Most people just rip it out of the typewriter and go to go to press. Mm -hmm. You know, they, they, they don't check it. They let her go. Well, that, that's, that's where I feel like there could be some very mature, positive uses for yes. for AI. I mean, I, I do this all the time. I, I get my thoughts down. I, I get bullet points, but I really, and then I even write a draft, and then I have it mm -hmm. do copy edit on the draft. And I'm amazed as to how how good it is because yes. it's dealing with information that already I have verified or that I w want to talk about, and it mm -hmm. does nice job with transitions and with photographs you know taking old photographs that are fuzzy and you know with ai i use topaz and i can bring it to life because it 
it tries to add pixels there that should be there, and usually they're very, very yes. good with that. Yes. So there are so many extremely positive uses of it. But just like anything that's been invented, everything from gunpowder <laughs> back to, to arrows to nuclear, you'll have the nefarious elements that'll take over. That's, that is the weak link. And it's, it's always the weakest link in anything that humans do is human nature, as we know, tends towards the negative. Mm -hmm. um, and if it's, if it's something that someone can do to benefit themselves, and they will ride that horse as long as they can, no matter where it goes. And that's a problem when you have the power of something like uh, artificial intelligence or just the access to the Internet. Mm -hmm. um, and we are being approached with a generation that has no basis of understanding. We joke about it and you say a phone booth and they just give you the strange look. <laughs> they have no idea what you're talking about. And when you explain that you had a phone, you had to actually dial a face and remember a number. Uh, you know, they can't even comprehend this. I, I showed my grandchildren my typewriter that I used all the way through <laughs> high school and college in the first 20 years of my work in the ministry. You know, yeah. And they glanced at it as some what is this? You know, you know, what is this carriage return thing that you have to you know, move yeah. over? I, I, I almost took the typewriter to Goodwill because I don't yeah. have room to store it. But I found that they were so fascinated by it that it was just a historical moment. Three of my yeah. grandchildren were just gaga over that typewriter. Oh yeah. And it's and it's and it's the thing here that's one thing, but to think about that this has all happened in thirty years. And if you really look at it in the last fifteen years. It has just literally taken over. I can't complain. I got into this whole process of technology because I wanted, and just a little bit of history here, in 1975, I was offered a job to work for a company called the IEEE Magazine, and it is the Bible of Industrial Electronic Engineering. And I happened to be in a position where I was doing drafting and a lot of, uh, for the University of Kentucky, and when a professor would write up an article, they'd have a diagram, and I was drawing some of the diagrams. And the editor at a conference saw what I did and liked what I did and offered me a job to New York City. Well, I didn't want to move to New York City, and I wouldn't make really that much more money than what I was, was making. So I said no. And the bottom line was I started a journey at that point looking for, as my tagline was, that I could do whatever I do from here to GoFungo Botswana land. Mm -hmm. And what I was looking for was what we have right now, what you and I are doing. We're talking. And I could sit down and create an image in Photoshop or in graphics program, and I could send it to you by FTP or even smaller email or send you to a, you know, a Dropbox site or whatever, and you could pick up that stuff no matter where you are on the planet or above it as long as you have that connection to the Internet. So I, you know, I'm just fascinated every time I open up and ask a question to Google, whether it's on a desktop, laptop, phone, or whatever, that I can find 6 million returns on a question. Now, a lot of people just get so aggravated because they want, they want what they're looking for. Serendipity is my friend, and it's everybody's friend, really. Because if you just take a look at some of the things that are offered, you will start learning a lot of various items and i so i love that but at the same time 
now, especially in the last four to five years, when you do a Google search because of paid ads and people paying to get their placement up higher, it seems that the proverbial drift rises to the surface. That that stuff that you want to scrape off and throw away, it mm -hmm. rises to the surface because will, people are willing to pay for it. So you have to dive down and dig a lot deeper. But it's still there. The information's there. And it amazes me while people, well, well how do I do this? And they've got, they've got their phone in their hand. They're going like, I don't understand how that does this. And I look at them and say, go to Google and type it in or just talk it in. Mm -hmm. And you'll have, you know, within five minutes, you'll have your answer. So anyway, part of all of that derivative of being a bringing that information or Google for a lot of search engines is AI. Mm -hmm. And it's really a great thing. But where it's going to go off the rails Here's the thing I got right in front of me. I just read this morning, uh, and it's in the uh, neuron. AI is costing a fortune to run. And people don't realize that when you go on the Internet and you do that Google search, you're kicking into action servers that if, if you're not familiar with technology and somewhere that drives you up to this building that looks like an industrial complex that you know, covers 25 to 30 acres under roof, what are they manufacturing in there? You go inside and you just had this mm, constantly. It's servers, row after row after row after stack, 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 15, 20, 32 high. Blade, you know, blade, you know, computers that are just in stacks by the thousands in this one building. Mm -hmm. And there are hundreds of these buildings across the world. And when you ask something, it goes searching at those servers. And if a server is too busy or happens to be down in America, it'll go to Canada or go to Europe or go wherever that server is active. And, that, that, and everything is duplicated. So that in yeah, case it, is of, it has to be duplicated because if you have an accident, yeah. you have a meltdown, you have any kind of thing, people want their information now when I, when I ask for it. That costs a lot of money. It costs a lot of energy to run. And when you ask something for an AI to do something, you know, a person walks around with a brain and no matter where you go, whatever you've put in that brain can come out your mouth uh, or you can understand and computate something. Boom, boom, boom. And we operate on microvolts. It stores there the, the amazing creation that the brain is. And it takes these giant buildings to even come close now of course they can go through petabytes of information much faster than we can and that requires a tremendous amount of energy so this is going to be a limiter people are not going to like this but at the same time it opens up another whole study area mm -hmm. how do we make them smaller how do we make them faster and they're doing it they're actually doing this well and i i know that in 2018 this is just uh, five six years ago i went to the Museum of Computer Science, something to that effect in uh, Silicon Valley. Mm -hmm. and it, it was a tremendous uh, it was a tr tremendous experience to learn. It started off with uh, early desktop computers, and it showed the development of, of computational power. And yes. it really impressed me, the very last graphic, is that it was just a graph that the line went straight up it wasn't it wasn't even 45 degree angle or anything it went straight up as to how much speed how much storage space is developed and it was like if it goes up this high 
from there, where's it going to go? It's even go even going to go higher. So the yeah. question was, is that where will, will all this end up? And one thing that was brought up in the lecture yesterday about learning, we're able to duplicate learning techniques that he said that a child can do quicker than a computer, you know, as far as just learning things. Because yes. for a computer to uh, be generative and to learn these things, it requires all this power that you're talking about. Now, I know it's getting smaller and, and it's getting more efficient, right. but he said a little child, what it learns just on, on the spot is that type of thing. He said it, it's kind of an anomaly is that a child compared to all this power, but just the whole learning experience of human beings is still superior to that, except for the fact that we have to have a lot of memory and we're gonna yes. live so long. Well, here's, here's, another, here's another interesting thing to think about the learning aspect is that, again, if you wanna know something, you have at your access, whether you go to a book and read it or you go to the, uh, online and find it there, Knowledge and the desire to learn is taught. And there are certain temperaments that lean more towards being able to be curious and to want to know things. But everyone can learn to learn. Everyone can learn where the sources are. That's the whole point of when you started at school, they taught you the alphabet. They taught you how to read the alphabet. They teach you how to do the numbers. All of this is perfunctory baseline material so that you can learn further on the unfortunate thing about the internet and this was a crutch that we saw happening early on and i made the comment to somebody probably around 92 or 1992 1993 uh, because 1993 was the year that the internet became it simply because the browser was made available mm -hmm. there was data you could go on and uh, through read news groups and on a server, and you could type through a little bitty uh, text window, and you could ask questions and find information. But the moment a browser was made where it can take a rendering of data, and it's rendered into HTML, which is displayable on your screen, you can traverse going through asking questions and go through folders and, and uh, hypertext links and whatever. People have looked for they have lusted for the easy button, the easiest way to find something. Mm -hmm. And that's what we have with the internet and its speed. When you do that, it's, it's good. It's great to have that. It's like, it's like having a car that go 120 miles an hour. If you have to go 120, it's great. But most of us will never need to go 120 miles an hour. So it's like a nice reserve to know you've got. Mm -hmm. It's the same thing in learning. If you're always looking for the easy button, then you lose that will and you lose the interest just to learn, to do what it takes, the work and the time it takes. You don't go, oh, I'm just tired now. Give it to me now. Mm -hmm. now like I said earlier about when you do a query on, on uh, Google, if it ever gets to the point that I get exactly what I want, I'm going to be disappointed mm -hmm. because where's my serendipity? It's gone. So... That is one of the things that we have to understand why. That's a, the question. Why is there so much interest in AI? Why? Like you said, the professor said yesterday, and I've read several things, and I've seen it. There are, you can list easily, most people could probably list 50 things in which AI would make your job easier. Mm -hmm. It would increase productivity, et cetera, et cetera. The marketing is taken off in a whole new direction with AI now. 
Mm -hmm. You'd think that every time you go and get a spam email by the bazillions or you get something else, whether it's on Facebook or whatever the media, you get all this spam. That's stuff that if a person had to sit down and generate all that by themselves, we'd be back in the old days of one or two pieces. But because you can set a little program to go out and look for keywords, you know, like my son, Aaron does, you know, for the home office, you know, setting up that SEO, that search engine optimization, when you set that keyword and it sees that boom, it goes to it. Mm -hmm. But if it it's not there, if that keyword's not there, then you've got to go back and research. Well, you don't, you don't have to go to it. It, it comes to you. Uh, we yeah. have, you know, a Google bot, you know, here in, at, at home, you ask, hey, Google, you know, ask a question. Oh, oh yes. And, and the thing is, is that we were discussing something about what we were wanting to buy some item for home. I can't remember what it was, a lamp or whatever. <laughs> all of a sudden, we get all these ads for lamps. I mean, it wouldn't stop. And yes. they're looking for you and looking for things that you might like and even things that are derivatives of lamps, light bulbs. And everything. Oh, yeah. Uh, when I was uh, when I was working at Purdue uh, back uh, probably about 2000. Yeah, right around 2000. Uh, we I made a contact with a gentleman who lived here in West Lafayette, and he specialized in developing marketing techniques for those magazines that you you know, they're only maybe 35 pages, maybe 18 pages long, and they're called business specifics. Uh, if you're in electronics, if you're in photography, or if you're in microchip development or photomicrography, all these little groups. Now, if you go to Facebook now, it's called a group. You go into a group that specializes in something. Mm -hmm. You go to LinkedIn, they have the same things, you know, for business. But he developed in a paper format, these magazines, and he developed a technique using the the blowing cards, yeah. there are punch cards that you could circle where you got it. And they would bring all this information back to his little house they had here in West Lafayette. And they go through all these cards and they would be able, they were able to determine how many people read an article, where did they stop reading an article? How far did it take them to get their interest in an article? It was fascinating. Amazing. And so we sat there in my office uh, in uh, uh, at Purdue and we talked about what two other professors that we were working on uh, extent, uh, distance education at the time. And we were talking about, man, this is so powerful in a digital world. You wouldn't have to gather. The data would be crunched by a, a bot, which is basically a little program that reads it and read it back out to you. That's what they call Google marketing. That's, you know, basically digital marketing. And that's where AI is incredibly powerful. Because it can run through all this information just at lightning speed and read it right back out to you. Amazing. So that's that's you know, that's some of the stuff that's that's going there. Well, you know, we've had so much said here, but I think we'll save it for part two. There's just so much more to say. Les, this has been a great discussion. I have really appreciated the things that we talked about today. So thank you for joining us today. Really appreciated you being with us, Les. All right, Vic. Thank you. Take care, bud. Thank you for listening to us today on The Cubic Report. We welcome you to share this podcast and tell your friends about it. We can be found on a variety of platforms, including Apple and Google Podcasts, Pandora, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Audible, and many other platforms. You can easily find us at any browser address box by typing in the words, The Cubic Report, and there we are. Remember, Cubic is spelled K-U-B-I-K. We'd love to hear from you. 
write to us at vcubic at gmail.com. That's V-K-U-B-I-K at gmail.com. Again, thank you for listening. Come back soon for more.